Well, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? What do people mean when they say that they are a man of faith or a a woman of faith? Well, for some, faith seems to be almost synonymous with being like a positive person. It's something close to a a feeling or an emotion. Uh, Others believe faith is simply to identify with some religious tradition. They believe they have faith because they consider themselves to be a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim, even if they do not actively practice their religion. For others, faith is simply a set of beliefs, any set of beliefs. For them, what is important is not what someone believes, but that they believe in something. You can have faith in yourself. You can have faith in your God. You can have faith in science. For them, faith is a virtue regardless of the object of that faith. But are any of those things what the Bible means by faith? When we see that word Bible, that idea in the Bible about faith, is that what it means? Well, no, I don't think any of those are biblical definitions of faith. So then, what is faith according to the Bible? Well, a short definition of biblical faith is this. It's to believe in, rely on, and act in accordance with the person and promises of God. To believe in, rely on, and act in accordance with the promises of God. In his book, Conversion, we have it back there in the library if you want to check it out later, Michael Lawrence has a longer definition of faith. He defines faith this way. He writes, Christian faith is wholehearted trust that God will keep his promises in the gospel. Faith leans on those promises. It trusts God, his character, and his love. And so it leans on the promises of the gospel and nothing else. That is why James says faith without works is dead. Real faith leans and depends and follows and works. Well, therefore, biblical faith has an object. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And biblical faith shapes or or directs someone's life. That's why in the Bible, true faith is never separated from turning from one's sins. It's never separated from repentance and following after Jesus. There is no true faith without repentance. There is no true faith without change. For the next three weeks, we're going to briefly return to the book of Exodus. If you were not with us in the spring, we covered Exodus chapter 1 through 15, or at least most of chapter 15, in which God delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt through many signs and wonders. So if you remember, the book of Exodus opened with the people of Israel crying out to God because they were in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt. They were being oppressed. Well, God heard the the people's cries, and he raised up Moses to deliver his people from their bondage. And he sent Moses back to Egypt, back to the people of Israel, with the promise that God would save his people, that he would deliver the people of Israel. And more than that, that he would bring them into a good land, the land of promise. Well, God was faithful to that promise. He sent a total of ten plagues against the Egyptians in response to Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go. And in the last plague, God put to death all the firstborn males of Egypt, both people and animals. But he spared his own people by telling them to to spread the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorposts. 
It was this last plague that finally led Pharaoh to drive the people of Israel out of Egypt. However, he quickly changed his mind after driving the people out of Egypt, and he chased after them with his army, eventually trapping them at the Red Sea. But God miraculously parted the Red Sea so that his people, Israel, could walk through on dry land and drown the armies of Egypt as they tried to follow. God kept his word and he rescued his people. And so we're picking up the story today in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. It picks up the story right after God's people have safely journeyed through the Red Sea. So you can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. You can find the, the text in the back of your bulletin if you, want, if you want to there. And the next three chapters of Exodus cover the people's journey in the wilderness from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where God is going to come down on the mountain and enter into covenant with his people and give them his law. So we're going to cover that journey in the wilderness over the next few weeks until the people arrive at Mount Sinai. And so in our text for today, and really in the text that we'll study for, the ne- for next week, we will see a pattern emerge that describes Israel's time in the wilderness. There's a pattern that is going to emerge. Uh, God makes promises to Israel and calls them to trust in those promises, to place their faith in him and in his word. Then God brings a trial into the people's life. A, a test that is intended to test their faith. Well, when tested, the people of Israel doubt and complain. But in the face of their doubt and unbelief, God is gracious to the people and he meets their needs, revealing once again, though he does not have to, that Israel can trust in him, that they can depend on him, that they can rely on him. Well, this pattern repeats itself three different times in our text for this morning, so what I want to do is simply go through these three tests in the life of Israel, explain them, and hopefully apply them to our lives today as Christians. But before we do that, I think it's important for you to understand that Israel's time in the wilderness is a picture of the Christian life. Well, first, Israel's redemption is a picture of our redemption. We thought about that idea a lot in the spring as we were in Exodus. Like Israel was rescued from their slavery in Egypt, Christians have been rescued from their slavery to sin. Like Israel was spared from death by spreading the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts, well, Christians have been forgiven. They've been spared from God's wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ, who the Bible calls the perfect lamb of God. So the New Testament calls him our Passover lamb. And like Israel, we now, figuratively speaking, stand on the other side of the Red Sea. We have been saved, but we have not experienced the fullness of that salvation or the complete fulfillment of God's promises. Israel was still waiting to enter the promised land. We're still waiting to enter heaven. That's why we just sang on Jordan's stormy banks we recognize that there is a parallel between what Israel was waiting for and what we are waiting for. Israel was waiting to enter the promised land and we are waiting to enter heaven. Oh, this is why the Bible calls Christians strangers and sojourners on the earth. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we have not yet arrived at our final home. We have not yet reached our eternal destination. And like Israel... God uses your time as a stranger and a sojourner to test your faith, to refine you. He uses it to make you holy. 
to consider James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James writes this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God used the trials that Israel faced in the wilderness to test their faith. And Christian, God uses trials in your own life to test your faith, to instruct you, to expose the areas in which you lack faith in him and in his promises that you might repent and grow into maturity. He uses them to teach you to depend on him. So as we walk through these episodes in Israel's history, just ask yourself, well, how am I like Israel? Where am I prone to doubt? Where does my faith need to grow? And so this first episode in Israel's history that we're going to look at, you can find in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. So please follow as I read. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah. But they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statue, an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Remember the pattern that these verses reveal. God makes a promise and calls Israel to place their trust in him. God brings a trial or a test into their lives to test their faith. The people doubt and complain, but God is gracious. Well, the the promises that lay behind these verses are found all the way back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is what God promised them while they were still in bondage in Egypt. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God tells his people that he is their God. He promised to redeem them from Egypt, which he did. And he promised to bring them into the land of promise. That, as we just thought about, is what they were still waiting for. God had accomplished their salvation from Egypt. They had just been miraculously delivered from the Red Sea. But three days later, trouble shows up. They journey three days into the wilderness without finding water. Their supplies have to be running low at this time. And then when they finally do find some water at Marah, they discover that it is not fit for drinking. Well, their first test has come. How will they respond? Well, as we just read, not well. 
They ask, what are we going to drink? They grumble against Moses. Now, on one hand, I think we can be sympathetic to their situation. We live in a desert. We understand the preciousness of water. We know their supplies must have been running low by this point. This was a real difficulty that they were facing. Brothers and sisters, some of the difficulties that you face in your life are real difficulties. But there is a reason that God brought this trial immediately after their dramatic rescue from Egypt. That is because in the grand scheme of things, in relation to what God had already done for them, this problem should not seem all that big. I mean, is the God who turned water to blood, rained down hail from heaven, and just made it possible to walk through the sea on dry ground really incapable of providing the people with water? Is the God who was faithful to keep his promise to bring them out of Egypt really going to let them die of thirst and fail to keep his promise to bring them into the wilderness, into the promised land? Is he going to let them die of thirst in the wilderness? Though Israel had these promises, though they had seen God act in mighty and miraculous ways, their faith wavered. Instead of faith and reliance on God and his promises, they were marked by doubt and unbelief. Brothers and sisters, I think it can be easy for us to be hard on Israel. We wonder how they could doubt so soon. This is three days after going through the Red Sea on dry ground. Brothers and sisters, just ask how quick you are to complain when things go wrong in your life. How quick are you to doubt and despair when things don't turn out how you wish they would? Brothers and sisters, really, how big are your problems in comparison to your God? However, when life's difficulties come, we so often fail to remind ourselves of God's character, his greatness, his promises, his faithfulness. Instead, we doubt and we complain. We worry and we fret. But brothers and sisters, God is gracious. He was gracious to Israel and he is gracious to you as well. And notice what God did in response to the people's doubt. First, he miraculously made the water fit to drink. He provided for their needs. And this communicated that God would continue to provide for Israel during their time in the wilderness. He had not abandoned them. They could depend on him. They could rely on him. He did not leave them at the Red Sea. Well, Christian, what has God promised you? He has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. That he loves you more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field so that you do not have to be anxious about what you will eat and what you will wear. Christian, how often has God proven his faithfulness to you and his continual care of you? Brothers and sisters, you can depend on your God. God was faithful to provide. And second, in verses 25 and 26, God reaffirmed his commitment to do his people good by telling them that obedience to him, faith and trust in him, would lead to their welfare. He would be their healer. Now let me just briefly say that is not, that is not a promise to you, Christian, that if you just have enough faith in God that you will never get sick, that no disease will strike you. Although God did make promise of material blessing and health, as we see here, to Israel if they were faithful, 
Well, the emphasis shifts in the New Testament to the spiritual blessings that come in Jesus Christ. Jesus does not promise material blessings on this earth. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you find quite often that he warns of trials and tribulations, even persecutions to come on this earth. He does not promise abundant material blessings to his people, but abundant spiritual blessing of life in him. Therefore, the Christian's hope is not in material reward in this life. It is in the fact that there will be a day when there is no more disease and there is no more sorrow. It is in the hope that there is a day where there is no more illness. But friends, that day is not today. That day awaits us in the promised land. It awaits us in the life to come. As one author put it, the lesson of the whole Old Testament is to teach us that our problems are not fundamentally material or physical. Our problem is fundamentally spiritual. We have rejected God, his provision, and his rule over our lives. In other words, our problem isn't that we don't have enough stuff. Our problem is we don't rely and trust on God. Israel's problem was not that they did not have enough materially, it's that they were marked by doubt and unbelief. They needed to be spiritually transformed. Brothers and sisters, that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give eternal life, which means the fullness of the Christian's reward is to be found in him and that eternal life that is to come. If you have more questions about that, I'm happy to talk to you. We have a couple of books about that in our library that you are welcome to check out. So God was gracious to his people to provide for them, to reaffirm his commitment to do them good, And then we see in verse 27 that God was gracious to his people to bring them to the oasis of Elam, a place of abundant food and water. He gave them rest. He showed his abundant ability to provide and what life could look like if they faithfully followed him. But that brings us to the second test that Israel faced. Look with me at Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness. 
And there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, What is it? Because they did not know what it was. Moses told them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. At the end of chapter 15, life seemed pretty good for Israel. They're relaxing by an oasis. They've got date palms and water and shade. Then God brought them to a new place. Life changed. New circumstances arose. They were back in the desert, and this time they were short on food. All of a sudden, life did not seem so good anymore. Friends, have you ever wondered why God would allow something to happen to you? Some trial, some unexpected circumstance. Why would he take you from a place of comfort to a place of difficulty? Have you you ever wished that life could just go back to the way it was? Well, that's exactly what Israel was thinking. They did not just want to go back to the oasis of Elam. Uh, We see in verse 3, they wanted to go all the way back to Egypt. They thought it would have been better to live and die in captivity in Egypt, where at least their bellies were full. That would have been better than following the Lord into the wilderness, where they weren't so sure where their next meal was going to come from, where they were going to find water again. Brothers and sisters, how quick we can be to trade the pleasures of God for mere temporary earthly delights. God was testing them. Would they trust or doubt? We know the answer. We just read about it. Israel doubted. They again grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And did you notice how many times Israel's grumbling and complaining was mentioned in these verses? In just in verses 1 through 16, I count six. Well, the author is making a point through repetition. He does not want you to miss Israel's response. And Moses gets to the heart of the matter in verse 8. Your complaints are not against us. Your complaints, Israel, they're not against me, Moses. They are against the Lord. The Bible repeatedly points out Israel's complaints to emphasize their lack of faith in God. That's the point. Their complaints are illustrating their lack of faith in God. Friends, have you ever considered the fact that your own complaining does the same thing? Even if it is directed at another, your complaining is really complaining against God. Kids, if you complain about your parents or to your parents, your complaints are not directed just towards your parents. They are directed towards God. Parents, if you complain about your kids, those complaints are not directed towards your kids. They are directed towards God. If you complain about your work or your boss, those complaints are not fundamentally directed at your work or at your boss. They are directed at your God. Your own lack of contentment about the circumstances of your life and your own complaints reveal, at least at that moment in which you are complaining, it is revealing a heart that does not trust in the Lord or his promises. The people of Israel were doubting God's promises that he could provide or that he would provide. 
They were doubting his goodness that he would care for them. They were questioning whether it was really worth it to follow him. Brothers and sisters, when you complain, you are doing the exact same thing. You're either failing to believe that God is in control. He's not the one that is ordering all things, so therefore I'm going to complain about this circumstance I find myself in. Or you're failing to believe that God is committed to your good. Why would God allow this to happen to me if he really cared for me? Why would God allow this to happen? They're questioning whether it is worth it to follow him. Well, Christian, has God done less for you than he did for Israel? Do you have less reason to trust in him? Well, I think not. You live on this side of the cross. You have far more reason to trust in your God than Israel did, though they had seen him perform those miracles in Egypt and deliver them through the Red Sea. A Christian, you have far more reason to trust. But brothers and sisters, if God is even now convicting you by his spirit of your complaining, your unbelief, your lack of faith, your discontentment. I again want to encourage you that God was gracious to Israel even in the midst of their unbelief. Christian, God is gracious to you as well. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. God was gracious to hear their complaints. The people are complaining against him, but God did not shut his ears to them. Parents, that sometimes when your kids are complaining, you just kind of want to shut the door. But God did not shut his ears to Israel, and he does not shut his ears to you either. What did Israel deserve for their unbelief? What did Israel deserve for their complaints? Friends, they deserve God's judgment. They deserve to go right back to Egypt where they wanted to go. They deserve to join Egypt, the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. But that's not what they received. Instead of judgment, God revealed his glory to Israel in the cloud to make it unmistakable that he was with them, that they could rely on him. He spoke out of the glory cloud and promised to provide food for his people, and that is exactly what he did. We see in verses 14 and 15 that he provided a food that the Israelites had never seen before, a food that had never existed before and does not now exist either, manna. It was a bread from heaven a bread strayed from the hand of the Lord. A Christian, what do you deserve for your own complaining? What do you deserve for your own lack of faith? Your own discontentment? You deserve God's judgment as well. But what has God done? Well, in Jesus Christ, he has given you mercy. As Shilpa just read for us from John 6. God showed mercy by sending to earth God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true bread from heaven. It is Jesus who is the bread of life. And as Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. My friends, if you are here and not a Christian, how is it that you come to Jesus? How do you taste the bread of life? How do you get this bread by which you will never hunger again? It's by faith. It's by relying on the promises of God and relying on the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in John 6:40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. You must trust in his perfect life, 
his sacrificial death on the cross in your place and believe that because he rose again, all his promises are true and that he is who he says he is. He is God himself, the only savior of the world. Friends, if you do that, you repent of your sins, turn from your sins and follow Jesus, you will find mercy instead of judgment as well. God has been gracious. He sent his son, the true bread of heaven, that all who believe in him may have eternal life. That brings us to the third episode that we see in our text. So look with me at verses 16 through 35. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it, manna, as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual, according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, No one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside, every, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses told Aaron, Take a container and put two quarts of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. They used a measure called an omer, which held two quarts. In these verses, we find what is, at least in some sense, Israel's true test. Will they listen to the word of the Lord? Will they obey? Remember, true faith leads to obedience. God had rescued them from Egypt. He had given them water to drink. He had promised to continually feed them, and now they have seen him fulfill that promise by providing manna. But God also gave Israel specific instructions regarding that manna. He told them that he was going to provide it daily for them, so they were not to take more than they needed for the day. The only exception was to be the day before the Sabbath. 
And the Lord said he had even given the Sabbath for their good. It was a day that they were to, uh, it was to emphasize their reliance on him. They were to worship him, but he had given it to them for their rest. Well, they were to gather twice what they needed the day before the Sabbath so that there would be no need to gather on the Sabbath. So they could indeed rest. Miraculously, the manna they kept overnight for the Sabbath would not rot as it did every other day of the week. Why did God give these instructions? Why did he choose to provide for Israel in this way? I love how the theologian Ross Blackburn puts it in his book, The God Who Makes Himself Known, which is a book about Exodus. He writes this, The manner in which he, God, provides for Israel further underlines the Lord's intention to foster trust in Israel. The issue in Exodus 16 is, of course, the lack of food. The Lord addresses this lack by providing Israel with food one day at a time, save the special circumstance of the seventh day, effectively representing every evening the very circumstance about which the Israelites were complaining, the lack of food. The lack of a sustainable food source would be a constant reminder that the Lord was Israel's provider. Israel's obedience, or lack thereof, is shown to be dependent upon her trust in the Lord's promises of protection and provision. The provision of the manna as a daily provision is precisely meant to train, repeatedly instilling in Israel a trust in the Lord. Why did God provide food in this way? For two reasons. To test Israel and to train Israel. To train them to continually trust in him by reminding them of his provision and their need of him to provide. First, though, God tested the people. Would they obey? As Blackburn put it, Israel's obedience or lack thereof is shown to be dependent upon her trust in the Lord's promises of protection and provision. In other words, if they really believed that the Lord would provide each day, if they really believed he would do exactly what he said they would, he would do, if they truly trusted in his promise of daily provision, they would obey. They would not gather more than they needed. Their faith was to be shown in obedience. And my previous pastor in the United States was fond of telling the story of Charles Blondine, a famous tightrope walker from the 1800s. Kids, I think you heard about him in your Sunday school lesson last week, but you get to hear about him again, so I apologize to you kids. Well, being the great tightrope walker he was, the great blondine decided to become the first person to walk over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. If you do not know, Niagara Falls is a huge waterfall on the border of the United States and Canada. Uh, falling over the falls, falling off the tightrope would mean certain death. Well, this is the challenge that the great blondine took on. So when the day for his performance came, a large crowd gathered to watch, and he did not disappoint. He easily walked back and forth over Niagara Falls on this tightrope a number of times. But he did not stop there. He took a chair out on the tightrope with him, and about halfway over the falls, put the chair on the tightrope and sat down. He went out another time, and he juggled. When it was time for lunch, he went out and made lunch for himself on the tightrope, and he ate it on the tightrope. But he was still not done. For his last act, he got a wheelbarrow and asked the crowd if they thought he could push it across. 
Of course, they, could th they thought he could do anything by this point, so they enthusiastically responded and cheered him on. He asked if they thought he could push somebody across in the wheelbarrow. Of course, yes, you are the great Blondine, you can do anything. But then he asked for a volunteer. He wanted a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow, but no one volunteered. They had seen the great Blondine easily master the tightrope, but they would not trust him with their lives. Well, the point of that story, as my pastor would always say, is that true faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. The faith of that crowd that day was put to the test, and their faith was found to be lacking. Uh, brothers and sisters, in all these tests, the Lord was asking Israel to get in the wheelbarrow, to trust that he would care for them, provide for them, protect them. They had seen him perform mighty deeds, so true faith would trust him to continue to care for them. If they truly had faith in him, they would listen to his word. They would obey his word. Brothers and sisters, that's why it is true to say that the heart of sin the heart of your sin is really a lack of faith in God. When you sin, when you fail to listen to his word, when you fail to obey his word, you are saying in your heart, at least at that moment when you choose your sin over God, you are saying that you do not trust in God or his promises. You're saying in your heart that I don't truly believe God can be relied on. I don't, know, I don't believe that his words are true and that his ways are good and right. Friends, if you did, you would not sin. You see in verses 20 and 27 that many in Israel lacked faith in the Lord and they did not obey. Even though the Lord said, do not keep any manna until the morning, I'm going to sin more the next day. Well, they heard what the Lord said. They were a bit doubtful that the manna was going to show up again on day two. So they decided to rely on themselves instead and, and gather a little extra. You know, we just want to be safe. Let's hedge our bets against God. Many in Israel ignored the instruction to rest on the Sabbath and went out to gather. They heard what he said, but they did not really find it all that important to obey. Does it really matter if we rest on the Sabbath? Do we really need a day devoted to the Lord? Uh, I don't really feel like collecting double the day before. Is it really that big of a deal if I collect on the Sabbath? Well, friends, in your own life, it is worth stopping to ask where you, like Israel, struggle to get in the wheelbarrow. Where are you most tempted to doubt God and his word? Friends, those areas of your life that cause you the most worry and stress, the most fear. Well, Israel was afraid of no food, and so they gathered extra. Friends, those places in your life where you are most fearful and most worried and most anxious. Well, it is those areas that you are most likely struggling the most to trust in God's sovereign care and his provision. It is in those areas that you are most likely to take things into your own hands instead of trusting in the Lord. For Israel, it was food and water. Brothers and sisters, where do you struggle to believe that God is truly enough to meet your needs? It's also worth asking yourself where you are tempted, like Israel, to simply ignore the words of the Lord. You know, what commands and instructions of the Bible do you encounter and treat as if they're really not that big of a deal? I know what the Bible says, but it isn't really that big of a deal if I hold a grudge. I tell a little lie. I get angry. If I complain, I mean, everybody complains. Is it that big of a deal? 
I know God says that it's important to spend time in the word and time in prayer, that I should come in him and rely on him. I know God says gathering with his people is important. Yeah, but is it really that big of a deal? Friends, wherever you find yourself tempted to doubt God and ignore God's word, take time to confess to the Lord. Ask him to renew your faith. So first, God provided food in this way to test the people. But second, he did it to train them. As Blackburn wrote, the provision of the manna as a daily provision is precisely meant to train, repeatedly instilling in Israel a trust in the Lord. My friends, there's something important to see in that. God's grace did not just come after he tested Israel. His grace did not just come after the test. The tests and the trials themselves were acts of God's grace. The tests and the trials themselves were acts of God's grace. They were training Israel to trust, to teaching them that God could be trusted. Brothers and sisters, the trial God allows into your life by his sovereign hand are for your good too. Those trials and those difficulties are acts of God's grace. Hebrews 12, 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And this is how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline or training seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who don't spend the whole time in it complaining, but seek to rely on the Lord. To seek to learn how that the Lord provides for them. To see the Lord's faithfulness in it. Brothers and sisters, the tests that God brings into your life are intended to train you to trust him and to grow you in holiness. To teach you to delight in him more than you delight in the things of this earth that cannot satisfy. And the tests and trials of your life are intended to teach you to get in the wheelbarrow. And notice in verses 32 through 34 that God commanded Israel keep a little manna permanently as a testimony to future generations of his faithfulness to provide for his people. He kept a record of his faithfulness that Israel was to keep with them throughout all their generations so that future generations might see the Lord's provision, that they might be led to trust in him as well. And friends, this is something of what the Lord has done for us in the Lord's Supper. He's given us a visual reminder as a church that we are constantly reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us, his body broken for us, and his blood shared for us. And notice in verse 35 just how faithful God was to provide. Day after day for 40 years, throughout their time in the wilderness, each and every day, God provided manna for the people to eat. He did it all the way till they reached their final destination of the promised land. He never failed. He was continually faithful. Brothers and sisters, can you say anything different about God? Has he been anything other than completely faithful to you? Has he failed you in any way? I think you know the answer to that question is absolutely not. He has always been faithful. He always will be faithful. You can rely on his promise that he will be faithful to provide for you until the day that he brings you to your eternal destination. Until the day that he brings you home. God has also left an even greater testimony of his past, present, and future faithfulness for you 
than the manna that God told Israel to preserve as well. He has left you his word. He has given you a book that recounts all his faithfulness of old and tells you exactly what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. And that lays out in great detail the hope that you have of eternal life. Friends, he's given you everything you need to place your full faith and trust in him. He has sent his son, the bread from heaven. He has given you his word. If you were his, he has given you his spirit. God has given his church, the Lord's Supper. He has given you other brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. The question is, will you trust him? Will you get in the wheelbarrow? Do you live your life trusting in God's character and relying on his promises? What do the tests and trials of your own life, the difficult situations you face, what do they reveal about your own faith? When tests and trials come, do you cling to the Lord? Do you find him sweet during those times? Or does your life look a little bit more like Israel? Friends, the truth is that we all look a little bit like Israel. In fact, the truth is that we all look a lot bit like Israel. We all have times of doubting and complaining. Our faith is often weak. But friends, the answer is not to pretend like that's okay. Everybody does it. We all struggle. We're sinners. That's true. But the answer is to repent and ask God to renew and to strengthen your faith. To confess where you doubt and ask him to strengthen you for the next trial. Brothers and sisters, we are strangers and sojourners on this earth. We live in the wilderness. But we have the sure hope that we will one day reach the promised land of heaven. As we wait for that day, we are to lean on God's promises. We are to depend on his character. And we are to follow him in obedience. Brothers and sisters, that is true faith. That is biblical faith. Let's pray.